In Western civilization, uh, Christianity is becoming what we call a cultural minority. This might not be shocking to you guys. For a long time, we were what was called a cultural majority. Uh, but over the last really uh, couple years, uh, we've moved into what's called a cultural minority. And this is not altogether bad. Uh, we actually see in the scriptures Jesus do incredible things when the church is among the minority, uh, when the church is persecuted, uh, and when the church is not the norm. Uh, many scholars call this uh, entering the time of creative minority, in which the church, once again, is called into a deeper level of creativity, as we may not be accepted as the norm. And so it's a exciting time to be alive, but regardless of the fact that we are no longer uh, necessarily a cultural majority, prayer, the practice of prayer, is still really prevalent in our society today. Just take political proceedings, right? Presidential inauguration, there's always someone that comes up and does a prayer, right, for the presidential inauguration. Or uh, the national prayer breakfast, right? That takes place on a national level, takes place on a local level. We see prayer uh, within the context of politician speeches, right? Usually when something really difficult happens, you'll see a politician pray as part of their response to that particular event. We see prayer happen within the context of our entertainment. Uh, I don't know any Fast and Furious fans out there. Are there? Okay, there are a few. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because I'm not a Fast and Furious fan, but I'm going to quote from Fast and Furious. Um, I think it's the movie Six, and uh, they're ending. Alex is, like, shocked right now. I know. I did my research. Uh, it's, like, movie Six, and they're ending the movie, and uh, Vin Diesel is, like, around, oh, yeah, Caleb knows, around the dinner table. Everybody remember this? And he's, like, praying for the food, and the last line of the movie is, and thank you, God, for fast cars. What a prayer, right? Last line of the movie. Uh, a little bit more serious movie, Gravity. Anybody see that movie it's Sandra Bullock's and it's like a space uh, yeah, movie yeah so she's like in the spaceship she's like gonna die and she like records this message that says somebody pray that you would pray for my soul I don't know how to pray somebody pray for my soul it's her last words right we also see this within our music at every high school dance prom whatever it looks like what song inevitably comes on living on a prayer right Right? Hit of Bon Jovi. Living on a prayer. Yeah, anybody? Okay. Yeah, living on a prayer. And it's all about this couple, right, that's going through a really hard time, and they're just living on a prayer, whatever that means. Uh, I have to confess, in junior high, I was a really big Carrie Underwood fan. And this is back in flip phone times where you could, like, buy your ringtones on the T-Mobile store. I'm really embarrassed to admit this. Um, at one point in time, my ringtone was Before He Cheats by Carrie Underwood. I have no idea why. I just really liked it. And then, like, a couple months later, I bought, um, I got my allowance. And I bought uh, it, Jesus Take the Wheel, right? And it's all about this prayer to Jesus as this woman's, 
like getting into a car accident and her life's falling apart. Prayer is a part of just our pop cultural and cultural understanding, despite our move away from cultural majority Christianity. And, you know, research backs this up. We see um, there's a study actually done out of the UK, which in most respects is even farther on the Western civilization tracked away from Christianity than even we are in the United States. And it showed that one in five people uh, who were non-religious still prayed when really bad things happened. And so largely in our culture, prayer is kind of just that thing, right, that we do that makes us feel less anxious, that calms our worries, calms our fears, helps us feel a little bit better about our life, feel less lonely. And although I don't completely disagree with this definition, I think it barely scratches the surface of what prayer really looks like. And the reality is culture not only gets this idea of prayer wrong, but we kind of do in the church too. There's a whole lot of different understandings and different beliefs about what prayer looks like. And as I go through a couple of these different ones, I want you to know there have been multiple times in my life and still to this day when I fall prey into thinking that prayer is only one of these things. First of all, in many of our churches, we think of prayer as just simply a form of self-therapy right? I'm replacing my negative thoughts with positive thoughts. I'm removing my anxieties and I'm replacing them with the peace of Christ, whatever that means, right? I'm centering my soul again on Jesus and getting rid of all the garbage, a form of self-therapy. Sometimes we think of prayer in the church as a form of payment for like this divine vending machine. Anyone knows what I'm talking about? It's like if I say the right thing or if I just do the right thing, if I have the right words, if I talk loud enough, if I talk long enough, if I talk out loud, if I talk in my head, right? It'll all be okay. I'll get that divine vending machine bag of Cheetos, whatever I'm needing, right? God will get that to me. He'll give that to me if I just say the right thing. Think of God as some sort of divine vending machine, as prayer, as payment for that. And then some of us within the church, and this is probably where I fall prey uh, the most, is thinking of prayer as simply just like an accessory, right? Just something that I do in my life in addition to all these other things that I do. It's just like an add-on, something that I say at the beginning of something or the end of something so it has some spiritual aura about it. It's blessed somehow, right? But it's really an afterthought, if we're being honest. It's really just like a pair of earrings instead of a shirt. It's just an accessory to our spiritual life. And although all of these understandings of prayer aren't inherently wrong, they're not all really right nor do they fully encompass what prayer really is and what Jesus demonstrated for us in the scriptures. And what we're going to see today is that true, the true function of prayer is communion and collaboration with God. Communion and collaboration with God. As I mentioned, we're finishing up this sermon series on Colossians, and we have asked you to kind of keep three things in mind. The first is that this is a letter written by Paul to a young church called the Colossae Church. 
And this is really fun to me because we are young church. We just launched not yet a year ago, right? So we just started in the fall of, what was that, 2022? Something like that. 21. Ah, I'm remembering things. We haven't gotten to the fall of 22. Okay. Fall of 21, right? As we just launched. So we're still young, right? We're a young church. Alex and I were young pastors. Uh, Epiphras was a young pastor pastoring this church in Colossae. And so I think a lot of what Paul has to say to this young church can apply to us here today. The second thing we've asked you to keep in mind is that Christ has started a new kingdom. So Paul kind of outlines in this whole letter this new way of living that Christ invites us to live as a part of being his followers, living this new kingdom life. And then lastly, spiritual maturity is actually learning to live in this new kingdom. We grow in our spiritual maturity as we live and breathe and work and have our being in Christ's community. And Paul says that actively learning in this new kingdom means you are actually growing in your spiritual maturity. And in chapter three, and then in the first part of chapter four of Colossians, Paul gives us some practical exhortations for how to live in this new kingdom. He first says you need to live this new kingdom life in Christian community. So he first says live this new kingdom life in Christian community by practicing the things the church practices. By being loving and kind towards one another. By singing songs of praise. By forgiving one another when we inevitably mess up. And then Paul says, you have to live this kingdom life within the context of your home. This is what Alex preached on last week. This idea that we're called to treat our wives, our husbands, our parents, our children, our servants with the love of Jesus, not according to the discriminatory practices of the day in the Colossian church, but according to this new kingdom way of living in Jesus. He calls the people of that time period to a greater form of cultural uh, understanding. Right? He says the culture that you're living in doesn't treat people like Jesus would in the home. So I'm calling you now as you live this new kingdom life in Jesus to treat those in your home with the love and the respect that they deserve. And then Paul goes on today, and this is what we're going to talk about, to give an admonishment to the Colossians as to how to live in this new kingdom life in the world. So how do we live in this new kingdom of Jesus in the world? He talked about the church, the home, and now the world. And interestingly enough, Paul instructs the Colossian people that to live this new kingdom in the life in the world, you have to root yourself in prayer. To live this new kingdom life in the world, you have to root yourself in prayer. We just read Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and in it, Paul admonishes the Colossian people to pray. He admonishes them to pray for him as he begins preaching the gospel. And then he admonishes them to have wisdom as they talk to people who are not yet in the kingdom of Jesus. And there are a few things that we can know and understand about this passage that we just read. The first one is this. In the words of Marianne May Thompson, a better translation of verse 2 would be prayer. Devote yourself to it. Prayer. Devote yourself to it. Paul here is saying prayer is central to the Christian life. You can't have one without the other. Prayer is like the heartbeat of the human in the life of Jesus. 
And then secondly, Paul assumes that because the Colossian people will be centered in prayer, that they will devote themselves to prayer, that they will pray on his behalf, that they're going to pray on Paul's behalf. And what's really interesting about this, Paul doesn't explicitly say this, but we know based on his instructions that he believes the prayers that they pray on his behalf will actually make a difference, right? That as the Colossian people pray for him and their church, his church planting team, that God will actually do something different in response to their prayers. And then lastly, Paul shows us that when we engage with the world, it is absolutely necessary to, to pray. Notice he doesn't just ask them to pray for him. He specifically says, I need you to pray for me to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ well to people that do not know him yet. And then he goes on to instruct the Colossian people to engage with people that don't know Jesus yet. And so inherently what Paul is saying here is if I need prayers to communicate the gospel well, me, the leader of the church planting movement in the first century, if I need prayers to tell people about Jesus, don't you, right? Don't you need prayers to tell people about Jesus, to engage with the world around you? And that's Paul's big idea here. To live this new kingdom life in the world, you have to be devoted to prayer. To help more people know about Jesus, to just engage in the day-to-day -day realities of a world that looks very different than our kingdom life, you have to be devoted to prayer. I don't know about you, but this feels like a really quick little like four verses that says be devoted to prayer. And I'm left thinking like, cool, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do that now, right? Uh, because a lot of the times you go into church spaces and we're told by pastors, leaders, pray, pray more, pray in the morning, pray in the afternoon, pray in the end time, pray for 30 minutes, pray for one hour, pray out loud, pray silently, whatever you do, pray, pray more, right? And that doesn't always feel really helpful. It's like, uh, okay, cool, I don't really know how to do this, right? And it's hard to know or to do this, to be rooted in prayer, because prayer really just does always feel a little out of reach. And I think it feels out of reach because primarily we don't know what it is, we don't know why we do it, and we don't know how we do it. I talked about this a little bit in my introduction. Uh, we don't know what it is, right? Uh, we think maybe it's a form of cell therapy, maybe it's like vending machine, like if I just pray more, God will bless me. We think it's like just in a thing that I have to do to be spiritual, or maybe we just think it's something else entirely. We don't know why we do it, right? Because we're taught in Sunday school or we hear from the culture that God's this all-powerful, all-knowing being that knows what we think before we ever say a word. So why would it matter for me to actually talk to God, right? If he knows everything that's happening in my brain, why would I pray? And then lastly, we don't know how to pray. It's like we're trying to unlock this magic formula of things to do, right? To talk to God in a way that we're supposed to talk to him. We go to sit down and pray for 30 minutes and like we're bored after five. Or we can't focus long enough. Our mind starts thinking about our dog and the fact that he just like pooped on the carpet. Or about the baby, right? And the screaming child. Or about what we have to do at work that day. Or the really stressful interpersonal interaction that just happened. And before we know it, 30 minutes has gone by and I did not think about Jesus once. 
So we don't know why we do it. We don't know what it is, and we don't know how to pray. And if you feel this way, uh, don't feel shame. Don't feel embarrassment. Because even me, a pastor, who apparently is supposed to have some sort of direct line to God, that's not true, but some sort of direct line to God, right? I even feel this way sometimes. And additionally to me, uh, feeling this way, the people that were in the closest proximity to Jesus, his disciples, they actually felt this way too. That's why we see in Luke 11, the disciples uh, look at Jesus after he's gone off and prayed, they look at him and they say, teach us how to pray. And you know, we don't really think that that's weird, reading the scriptures, like, oh yeah, disciples want to know how to pray, right? Jesus, he's their teacher, they want to know. It's really strange though that they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Because all of these individuals, even though they wouldn't have like a higher, higher education, the way the education system worked during that time period, uh, they were put in school from a very young age and pretty much almost all the disciples would have had the Torah completely memorized. These are people that uh, would have sat under tutelage of a rabbi as a, as a kid, would have been taught how to pray, went to the synagogue regularly. They were constantly surrounded by people in their first century culture that prayed all the time. And yet the disciples look at Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. I think Jesus had a way of praying that they had never seen before. One that wasn't reflected in their culture. And I think similarly, Jesus had a way of praying that's not reflected in our culture today. And we could learn a lot from so it's with this desire, right, that I want to work to answer those three questions. What is prayer? Why do we pray? And how do we pray? And you're like, okay, Cassie, are you going to go for like two hours? It's a lot of questions to answer. Yes, there's is a lot of questions to answer. I'm going to barely scratch the surface. I'm going to try to spend the next 10 to 15 minutes covering this uh, as we wrap up service. Uh, but I do just want to let you know, we're actually going to spend a significant amount of time really focusing in on that Luke 11, teach us to pray in the new year. Uh, because I believe if we can really understand this principle of why we pray, what prayer is, and how we pray, it can truly transform our lives. So let's just start with this first question. What is prayer? Simply put, prayer is communion and collaboration with God. Prayer is communion and collaboration with God. Let's split this up into two parts. First, commun communion with God. You know, oftentimes we view prayer as simply just communication with God, right? Like I communicate to God and maybe he communicates to me. I don't know, right? I say words to him and maybe I hear words back. But the reality is prayer is so much more than communication, when we actually look at the life of Jesus himself, he experienced union with the Father, not just times when he quote unquote went off to pray, but throughout his entire life. We see in John chapter 5 verse 19, uh, Jesus says the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the son does likewise. This shows us that there was like a union that was happening at all points in time, not just when he was off praying, 
right? Second one, John chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. The words I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You know, really interestingly, Jesus uses some of the same language in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me and I in you. I think this is what Paul is talking about when he says, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. It's this idea that we are constantly in communion with God. That there's never a moment when we just have a prayer life over here, but we have a praying life. You know, Mother Teresa, uh, quite the saint, right, in the faith, but also in our world, she understood this concept. And she did an interview uh, with a reporter. His name is uh, Dan Rather. He's a really seasoned anchor with CBS News. And Dan goes to interview Mother Teresa, and he asks her, uh, what do you say to God when you pray? And Mother Teresa looks at him, and she goes, I don't say anything. I listen. And he's like, okay, experienced reporter here. Let me rephrase the question. Okay, so what does God say to you when you pray? And she responds, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And Dan Rather, really confused. And she looked at him and she's like, if you don't understand that, I can't help you out. (laughs) That's literally what she said. If you don't get it, I, I can't help you out. Here's the thing. Mother Teresa understood that prayer is so much more than just communication with God. It's so much more than just talking. It's communion with God. So first and foremost, prayer is communion with God. Secondly, it is collaboration with God. You know, just before Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Keyword. Later on in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 9, it says, for we are all, this is Paul talking, he says, for we are all God's fellow workers. See, we were intended to be God's co-laborers, his fellow workers, his witnesses, his fellow employees. And the primary way in which we co-labor with God is through prayer. This concept might seem a little bit weird. I'm going to flesh it out more when we talk about why. But Dallas Willard defines prayer this way. He's uh, quite the scholar, saint of the faith. His books are amazing. He has lots of really good books about prayer. I would check them out. He says this, prayer is talking with God about what we are thinking and doing together. It is co-laboring with God to accomplish the good purposes of his kingdom. See, God designed us not to just have a prayer life, 30-minute segment over here where I talk to God, but he designed us to constantly be in communion with him and to be working with him throughout our day. See, prayer is not about fitting another activity into our really busy schedules. It's about incorporating God into the life that we're already living in his kingdom. And this is why Paul says prayer is central to the Christian life. You can't have one without the other. So what is prayer? Simply put, prayer is communion and collaboration with God. 
Second question we have to answer, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Uh, to understand why we pray, I actually think we have to understand who we are as created human beings. And so uh, bear with me here. This is going to be a lot of content um, in a quick short of time. We're actually going to walk through the story of the scriptures and who we are, our identity as the created image bearers of God. A lot of this content actually comes from Pastor John Mark Comer. Bridgetown Church has some incredible sermons on prayer. If you're interested, just Google it. You'll see it. Uh, but he develops these three points that we're going to go over today that help us understand our identity as co-laborers with God. And this is why we pray, because we're co-laborers. Okay, so let's delve into this. Uh, starting, we're actually going to start all the way back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Okay, so scroll with me on your phones or turn in your Bibles there. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He's referring to to the Trinity in that point. So there's not like somebody else there. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. This is really important for us to know and understand because this was God's original intention for humanity at the beginning. And so point one, God's original intent was for free, intelligent human beings to collaborate with him on running the world. Whoa. That's what you were originally created to do to collaborate with God in running the world. You know, that, that phrase image bearer doesn't have like a great translation in our English language, uh, but it would have been understood to the ancient cultures in which this story was being told to. And so whether you understand the Genesis account figuratively or whether you understand it literally, uh, it doesn't matter because we can still take the core principles of humanity, what we were created and designed for, and understand where things went wrong. Okay? And so this idea of image bearers here in that ancient culture, uh, that same word is the word that's used for kings or pharaohs. So think back to some of the Egyptian accounts that you remember, uh, the Moses movie. Anybody ever watched that? Yeah, the Moses is like a big deal. Anyway, uh, the Moses movie, okay? When you think about like pharaohs or kings, right? In the ancient cultures, kings or pharaohs specifically were supposed to be like intermediaries between regular people and God. They were supposed to be the people that had like literally some sort of divine extra special connection with the gods. And what's really cool about this account of human story and history from the one true God is he says, oh, no, 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 no. Every single one of you is designed to be a king, a pharaoh, a queen that acts as an intermediary between me and my creation. And guys, that is a crazy statement. That means that every single one of us has like direct access to God and then it was tasked with doing God's work. Like he actually saw us as an important piece in the hierarchical structure of how to make this creation thing work. 
Like we were designed from the get-go to be his co-laborers, not like puppets or robots that just did like some meaningless work that God told us to do. No, you're to rule over all of creation. That's what God is saying here. And to an ancient culture, that would have been just shocking, right? Because that, that was just reserved for kings or pharaohs. No, every single one of you. And being that God built that freedom into humanity in his beautiful, wonderful might and power, his desire to have a co-worker and a co-laborer, we then see humanity, because of that decision, kind of make a misstep. So point two, being that God built freedom into human nature, and because humanity willingly made and continues to make poor choices, the world has gone horribly wrong. If you know the story uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, God gives humanity, right, this free, intelligent human beings designed with a brain to think, to make choices. He gives them a choice. He says, you can rule and have dominion over all this garden. Just don't touch this one thing over here. If you do, you're going to run into some trouble. And unfortunately, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 7, humanity chooses to make that decision to disobey God. And here's the key. When they disobey God, they sever God's original tent for community to be co-laborers with him. Excuse me, for uh, his creation to be co-laborers with him. And so what the Genesis story reveals to us, whether you read it literally or whether you read it figuratively, is that the root problem of the world is not access to education. It's not access to clean water. It's not poor governmental systems. It's not systematic injustices, although all of those things are really important. They are symptoms to the root problem, which is the human heart. The human heart that chose to make a decision that disobeyed their creator. And ever since that decision was made, our human heart has been bent out of shape. It's no longer fulfilling that original created intended purpose of being God's co-laborers. And the rest of the whole Old Testament is all about God trying to fix that human heart. And he does this through a man named Abraham who has children and they have children and they have children, right? And it forms what's called the nation of Israel. And this nation is supposed to be the answer to that problem. They're supposed to be the example of what it looks like to partner with God in his creation. And unfortunately, we see that they just become a part of the problem. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 32. We're not going to cover all of verses 1 through 14, and we're probably going to start around 9. But if you know much about this story uh, or the story of the Israelites, you know that they, have been in, they were captured by the Egyptians. They were uh, slaves. They were not free-thinking, intelligent human beings, right, uh, being their intended creation purpose. And so, uh, of course, uh, God rescues them out of Egypt, and he does that through his uh, servant Moses. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai uh, to go talk with God, and he's up for there for a while, and the people of Israel start to lose faith. And they start to wonder if God's really there, they start to wonder if he's really going to continue to sustain them in this desert. And so they decide to erect a golden calf, an idol. Essentially what they're doing is saying there must be another God 
that rescued us out of Egypt, and he must be mad at us right now because we're not worshiping. So we're going to erect a golden calf in this other God, some God, whoever rescued us in his name. We're going to worship it so that we hope we get out of this situation. And Moses is up here on this mountain with God, and God see, begins to see what's happening, and obviously he gets angry. And we see, we pick up in verse 9, God says to Moses, I look at this people, oh, what a stubborn, hard-headed people. Let me alone while I give anger free reign to burst into flames and to incinerate them. But I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. And if I'm Moses at this time, I'm like cowering behind a rock because I'm like, oh, dear God, don't, don't, don't hurt me, right? Uh, we see God get angry here, Right? And I don't blame him. The people that he rescued out of Egypt have abandoned God. And so God, in the words of Professor Gary Bashirs, is processing his emotions out loud with this human partner named Moses. He's saying, I'm so upset, right? They just continue to make bad choices. And if I'm Moses here, I'm like, yeah, you're right, God. They made poor choices. But you'll make me shine me, so cool. Um, I'm just going to let that alone, right? And yet, this is how Moses responds in verse 11, starting in verse 11. Moses tried to calm his God down. Whoa. He said, why, God? Why would you lose your temper with your people? Why? You brought them out of Egypt in a tremendous demonstration of power and strength. Why let the Egyptians say he had it in for them? He brought them out so he could kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of your earth. Stop your anger. I don't know about you, but I was tracking with this story until Moses told God to stop being angry. I'm like, whoa, this is getting a little dicey here. Stop your anger said Moses to God, think twice about bringing evil against your people. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, who you told them, I will give you many children, as many as the stars in the sky, and I'll give the land to your children as their land forever. This is like, uh, I don't know, the real housewives of Moses over here, because Moses is like quoting God back to God. He's saying, you told Abraham, that you weren't going to abandon him, that you weren't going to wipe them off the face of the planet, and you're going to do that? Like, that's literally what Moses is saying here. And if I'm, like, looking in on this story, if I'm a fly in the wall, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Moses, hide, 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 right? You're going to get in trouble. God's going to be really angry at you. You just dressed God down. And in a surprising turn of events, in verse 14, this is how God responds. It says, and God thought twice. Other translations say God relented. God repented. God changed his mind. Whoa. And God decided to not do the evil he had threatened against his people. This is what early Christians call contending prayer. And notice, Moses is not passive here. Like, he is not saying, God, your will be done, not mine. Although that's really important. There are times to say, God, your will be done. But what we see here is there's also times to actually be angry at God. There are times to say, no, God, I don't want that to happen. No, God, this needs to change. No, God, this is not the way that things should be headed. 
This can't be right, God. There is both the ability to say, your kingdom come, and God makes this turn out differently. Change your mind. And this is really confusing to several of us, right, who grew up in the Christian faith and were told God's unchanging, right? He's steadfast. He'll never change his mind. He's always there. He'll always do what he says he does. He's unmovable. He's omniscient, right? He's never changing. And yet we see that God changes his mind here. We have to hold as Christians both these things in tension. And this is what Karl Barth, he's like a philosopher, a scholar, he calls holy immutability. And it essentially means that we hold both God's sovereignty and his deity with his choice to partner and collaborate with humans. God, the all-powerful deity, the all-wonderful, omniscient, omniscient, amazing person that is God. He chose to collaborate with humanity. He said, I'm willing to listen to my creation. In the words of Sky Jahani, I would suggest he has a book called um, If Jesus Was Serious About, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? It's so, it's so good. It's a really quick read. If you're interested in the subject, I would totally encourage you to read more on it. But he says this, particularly about this concept of holy immutability. He says, we are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama. But we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, designing, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than just asking God for this or that outcome. It's drawing into communion with God and thereby taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of the world. You see, God originally intended and designed us to be in collaboration with him, ruling his creation. We obviously messed that up. He started a new people called the nation of Israel. And the beauty of that nation is with Jesus coming here to earth, we have now become those people. And so in the working of living in Christ's kingdom, slowly but surely we are moving back into that original intention for us. Back to the identity of being free, intelligent human beings that commune and collaborate with God. And as we spend more time with him, as we commune with him, as we spend our lives with him, Solely but surely, that twisted heart untwists. And what we begin to do begins to be exactly what God designed for us to do, to collaborate with him. So why do we pray? Why do we pray? We pray to put the, word, the world to rights. Point three, prayer is a communal collaboration whereby we join with God to put the world to rights. So we were created to do that originally. We made a bad choice, and now that original intent for us is being reshaped and reformed. So why do we pray? 
We pray because it was originally what we were designed to do, right? To commune and collaborate with God. And lastly, last point, last question, how do we pray? How do we pray? Right, so if we're supposed to have a praying life, not just a prayer life, if praying is not just communion with God, but it's also the work of God, there's an action to it, right? It's not just passivity, being off on my own, alone, in solidarity, talking with God. If it's not just that, if I'm supposed to have a praying life, where do I start, right? Because that seems really ethereal. And there's a lot of ways to answer this question, uh, which makes it kind of hard, not because prayer is hard, but because there's a beautiful depth and diversity to communing and collaborating with God. There's a whole lot of ways to go about it. Uh, And so like I said, we're going to spend more time on this in the new year. I've recommended a lot of resources today. There's some resources on our website as well as under intentional formation. But there are two places that I think we can start. And this is going to be our spiritual practice for today. So worship team, you want to go ahead and join me on the stage. That would be great. We'll uh, round out this plane here. So first thing that I think we can do to have a praying life, not just a prayer life, just simply see God throughout the day, right? First point, simply see God throughout the day. If Paul said that praying is central to our Christian life, you can't have one without the other. If he said prayer, be devoted to it. If praying is a whole lot more than just 30 minutes spent in the morning, if it is the communion and collaboration with God, then simply figure out how to recognize God in your day today. A great tool to do this, uh, it's technically, technical word for it, prayer of examine. You don't have to call it that. Uh, Just set a few alarms on your phone. One at 9 a.m., maybe one at 1 p.m., and one in the evening at like 7 or 8 p.m. And whenever those alarms go off, all you have to do is think of God. Wherever you're at in that moment, maybe you're meeting with somebody for coffee Maybe you're having some sort of conversation, that alarm goes off. And all you do in that moment as you're talking to that person and turning off the alarm is thinking about God and asking him to guide you in that conversation. Okay? Maybe you're at work. The alarm goes off. You just finished your lunch break. break, You're about to dive right in. The alarm goes off. You stop it. You think about God and you ask him to actually help you as you work at your job that day. Do you know God can actually collaborate you in the work that you do at your job day in and day out? His kingdom can come as a result of you just inviting him into the work that you're doing. Maybe your alarm goes off at seven o'clock, you're in the middle of eating dinner and you just ask God, right, to inform your thoughts for the next day or to help you, right, as you're fixing the meal. Ask to see him just in the menial work of cutting vegetables or preparing chicken. So first step, just simply try to see God every day. Set those three alarms. You don't even need to stop or like tell somebody why you set the alarm. Just turn it off, right? Think about God. Invite him into what you're doing. Second thing, commit to pray for one person this week. One person. You know, Paul, he instructed the Colossian people. He said, pray on my behalf as I engage with the world. And he demonstrates what he wants his Colossian people to do themselves, right? As you engage with the world, pray. Pray for them. Pray for people that don't yet know know Jesus. And Paul believes that through these prayers, something 
would change. Something would happen in this world we live in. So here would be my encouragement. Really easy way to do this. I just want you to find a sticky note this week. Write down a person's name, maybe their initials, like if it's in a place you think they'll see it and you don't want them to see it, right? Or just like maybe a word, something that will jog your brain about one person, one person, and put that sticky note by your keys. You know you'll see it as you go out the door. Put it on your computer. That's a really good one for me. I know I'm going to open my computer at some point that day, right? Put it on your computer. Maybe you put it on your desk at work. Maybe you put it in your car. That's a great one too, right? We always hop in our cars and drive somewhere every day. And when you just see that sticky note, simple prayer. Be specific, but simple prayer. God, today, I pray for Garrett. I pray that you would help him know that you are there. And whatever he does today, that you would provide for him, that you would protect his body, you would protect his mind, and that you would help him know that you are in existence, that you would draw Garrett closer to you. Simple prayer, 15 seconds. Every time you see that postcard, or excuse me, that post-it note, you just pray for that person. So two really simple steps this week for growing in our spiritual maturity for being more like Christ as we have a praying life, simply recognize God throughout your day and commit to pray for one person. As we engage in these two practices this week, may we become not just people with a prayer life, but people that have a praying life. And so with that, let's practice right now as we pray and take communion with one another. God, we come before you today. And God, uh, man, I don't think I'm the only one that can admit I don't always know how to do this right. Lord, humbly, we ask you now, teach us to pray. You say in Luke 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. You confirm the same thing that we see in Exodus. That you want your children to ask good gifts of their father. That you want to collaborate with us. That you want us to be co-laborers with you. That you actually want to listen to what we have to say. And so God, today I pray that you would change our hearts and minds towards this type of prayer orientation. That you would help us as we work to become a praying people, not just people with a prayer life over here in the corner for 30 minutes a day. Lord, there's so many moments in time we're out of complacency. We just haven't had a praying life. We haven't recognized moments where you've been with us throughout our day. We haven't thought about you as we've worked, ways in which you may wanna collaborate with us, work with us on our behalf. And so Lord, briefly, we take time to repent of those times of inaction, of passivity, where we didn't recognize you.
Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.